This is the Canola Watch Podcast. My name is Jay Wetter. Welcome to episode four in our farmer series. With me today is Brian Tischler, farmer from the gray wooded soils at Manville, Alberta. I first met Brian at the Canola Council of Canada convention in New York City in 2006. He was a director with Alberta Canola, and I was covering the event for Country Guide magazine. I was Country Guide editor at the time. The Canola Council Conference had a food theme, and we got to meet influential New York City chefs and foodies who used canola oil. My article about the event is in the May 2006 issue of Country Guide, in case you still have it around. The title, Canola Has to Put Its Flower to Work, reflected on the advice these food influencers had for branding canola. The conversation you're about to hear has nothing to do with food and lots to do with technology problem-solving, and what makes Brian Tischler tick. Here we go. Tell me about your farm, Brian. Oh, it's just a, just a simple farm. I would do wheat, oats, barley, canola, peas, faba beans, all the, all the crops. I have a four or five year rotation and uh, try to do things a little differently. Um, have adopted, uh, not only direct seeding, but uh, but true zero till with the disc unit and stripping the stripping cereal grains and and most of the crops other than faba beans and canola doesn't seem to work very well. But uh, to maintain that residue cover and trapping snow and keeping the ground cooler during the summer, that sort of thing. I real focus on on just plain using less energy to create the same kilogram of wheat. As, as my neighbors do, because time in a tractor, time filling up fuel is, uh, is a direct cost. And with, you know, the prices of fuel going up all the time, I mean, those are things that, that really need to be considered is, you know, what is our, you know, pounds of CO2 per pound of grain we produce? You know, it's a, it's a fairly simple metric. And I think that's, uh, hopefully in the future, that's something we can explore more and we could take every farm down to that metric of, you know, it doesn't have to be pounds of CO2 produced, but how many kilowatts of energy does it take to produce, you know, one kilogram of wheat or one kilogram of grain or one kilogram of food or, you know, or break it down into protein and carbohydrates, you know, what is our conversion factor? You could then put your farm on a scale of how other farms are producing and, uh, and then compare it and think, oh man, you know, I'm using twice as much energy as, you know, as most other farmers. Well, gee, maybe I should, I should look at what I'm doing. Brian, I want to dig into a, a lot of that stuff, but let's go back to your equipment. I think you said you direct disc and then you have a stripper header. Yeah. Uh, can, can you tell me first about the disker and then about or the the drill pardon me and then about the stripper header well the drill is an old drill it was flexicoil originally came out with a, a flexicoil 6000 which was a, a double disc it had a disc ahead cut on one angle and a c disc that cut on a different angle and uh the achilles heel of that thing was straw straw on the ground and it would hairpin and push the straw in and then the the little c disc would come in behind that and it would just roll over top of the straw and then you'd only see your seed on top, which, I mean, unless it rained 
constantly for four days and then the root eventually made it to the ground it just wouldn't grow so anywhere you had you know a little bit too thick a residue it wouldn't grow and then that was a real problem so then another company pillar laser dick friesen was one of the the engineers actually on the original new holland 6000 or flexico 6000 and he asked uh well at that time new holland if they could take another shot at that disc and so they created a disc it was a hybrid disc and same sort of angle except they put a little wing bladey thing off the side of the disc so that the seed itself um, that little wing pushes the dirt and the straw sideways and then drops the seed on the ground and then the dirt just falls back in the packer wheel comes in and closes over top it's a bit more disturbance than just a straight disc unit but at least you're getting that good seed to soil contact so we bought the openers removed all the the uh the original openers and put the pillar laser openers on and then we had a quote unquote new drill because the the 6000 frame was just built like a you know a brick you know what and so the frame will last forever and we put the new openers on and it, it's worked really well it was uh, quite a learning curve to then um incorporate using a stripper header which just strips off the grain off the straw and it leaves the straw standing and leaving the straw standing um what it does is now it's not laying on the ground so the disc just kind of just drives beside it you know and just weasels its way through it so as long as you're leaving that straw up in the air then you no longer have hairpinning problems like like it's amazing how you can like how the straw breaks down because generally it's there's more moisture in the soil and the soil is is much happier because you have all this residue on top and you don't have the heat like we've had you know hailed out flax straw that we've just left on top you know and then seeded it into it that spring you know the way it had lodged and then by the following year you just take that straw and you just you know gently rub it in your hands and it just turns to dust if you just leave it alone if you just leave things where they are you don't have piles you don't have uh, difficulties in residue being stringy being drug that sort of thing you just leave it alone right you, you save energy and uh and let just let nature do it rather than straw choppers and all this diesel fuel you said your system is really good for cereals maybe not as good for canola and faba beans but what's the difference no just the stripper like the stripper what it needs to do is it's just like a it's just like a combing rotor um like if a faba bean is is on the other side of the plant and pointing away then how can the stripper grab it so it tends to shoot out a few beans you know ahead and if, if you have four beans per square foot well you've lost a bushel an acre and you look down you go <clears throat> oh my gosh there's beans everywhere so then you just use a straight cut header and canola we found too that you know with with a long pod and possibly lodge that sort of thing or um that you could do it but i think that the yield or the the losses are too high on the header and in in some ways separating those pods from the canola you have to slow down i mean you're still limited by your sieves so all the pods and and a lot of the plant remains on the ground but all of those pods and that 
canola is all kind of bunched together. So you're still limited by the speed that you're going by your sieves. I mean, the, the capacity of your sieves and air system is what limits your travel. So there wasn't really a lot to gain by going going to a stripper header. Okay, so you use the straight standard yeah. straight cut header with the canola and with the fava beans. Yeah, and that's key. I mean, use what works. What is the primary motivator? You you talked about reducing the pounds of CO2 per pound of grain and, and that being a simple metric. Is that is that what drives you forward or is this ultimately profit and then the CO2 angle is is a bonus? Not profitability, not it's just fun. <laughs> I, you know, I had this discussion this morning. Um, farming is is what I do. It's not who I am. And I, I think if if I had to go back to a shake machine and and some of the and harrowing all the time and you know maintaining a straw chopper and and that's where I, I just don't think I would farm because it's just a lot more fun to do something completely different and and just the challenge of trying to get away with doing as little as possible is uh is it's just plain fun it, it's interesting i mean our crops aren't any worse than anyone else so there's the you know there it's an economic wash in that regard i mean it's not like we have crop failure or you know the crops they look good and the, the yields are good and comparable with you know sometimes especially if it gets some really hot dry weather um being able to hold on to that moisture and that ground cover it, it's always going to be more so there's that built in but for me it's just it's interesting and fun and a challenge that is uh, that's the number one driving factor we're, we're going to come back to a few of those statements because i think they're fantastic but but we need to explore who you are are you, you sure you, you want to go there, Jay? <laughs> <laughs> you have an engineering background. Tell me yeah. about your your job before you became a farmer. I took electronics engineering technology at NEAT and then studied bio, uh, biomedical and microcomputers. And, and then in the 80s, and microcomputers and microcontrollers and all that highly integrated was just kind of coming in. It was all very, very new. And I thought that the concept of, of uh, medicine and electronics together was, again, something fun, something really, really challenging. And so that's the route I took. And that was an endless path of learning. It was A to number one, begin to try to get a grasp on, on what's going on in an intensive care unit where they're, they're monitoring all the the vitals of the human body and then taking all of those sensors and pressures and measurement and electrical signals and then running it into a box that then tells the nursing staff the physicians all the specialists okay this is what the patient is doing and i found that very interesting and and challenging on the point of well a doctor would say well, the patient is doing this, but your little box is saying this, and it's wrong. Or the trying to determine, is the doctor wrong, or is the box wrong? Or are they both wrong, or are they both right? 
Give me an example of something you, that you innovated or, or a, a problem along those lines where where the body and the monitor weren't necessarily in sync or, or telling us what we needed or telling the doctor what the doctor needed to okay. see or know. Yeah, I think of one was in a, it was a really tricky one. It was a cardiac, something they do called cardiac output. And it's just a, basically a tube down in towards your, towards your heart. And what they do is that there's a little temperature sensor on the end. And along with the monitor, they can monitor uh, pressure and temperature and flow and, and, and calculate some of these things. What they do is they inject ice water into this, um, into the, the, call it a swan Gans catheter. And they, they inject that ice water. And what it does is it cools the blood in that particular spot. And now what the heart does is it tries to replace that ice water then with fresh blood and so what you do is you is you monitor then that temperature with a little temperature probe in the end of the swan gans and it's quite a process to get that you know catheter into exactly in the right spot in the heart and so they were doing that but they were getting very inconsistent cardiac output readings with uh with the patient what they kind of expected and what the monitor showed. And, okay, well, is it the monitor? Is it actually the patient? Is it the temperature of the ice water? You know, um, is it the placement of the Swan-Gans catheter? You know, is it a bad connection? Is it possibly bad software for this patient? And in the end, it turned out to be a faulty thermistor in the very end of the Swan-Gans catheter. You know, where, where you had a team of professionals standing around an ICU bed making a decision and everybody you know putting their information in and and you come up with an answer and then you head that direction but you had to do something because time is of the essence and you can't well you know I'll come back tomorrow and I'll think about it it's like no you need to do this stuff now this is all new to me so I'm trying to wrap my head around this yeah. but but so if, if there was a if there was a message in within this in terms of you know how you approach a problem on the farm mm-hmm. like can can i draw a parallel or can you help me draw a parallel between that example and something that you might think through on the farm well you sure can um think about let's take something simple like rate of chemical application on a field you know you your sprayer isn't calibrated properly and you go spray and now you're not putting the right amount of product on the crop and then so then you look and you go well the spray didn't work you know you know was it environmental was it you know the fact that i sprayed too early did i spray too late no the fact was that you didn't put the right rate on even though you sprayed or maybe it was intermittent or there was possibly you know, a problem with the sprayer. And so then you have to look at the whole thing of, well, was it technical? Was it me? Did I use the right chemical? Did I, you know, there's all of these decisions and you have to troubleshoot the entire environment of the problem, you know, and then try to figure out what that problem is. You're the doctor as the farmer, the, the field is the, the patient, let's say. Correct. Everything is is right. You got the right medicine and i.e. the right pesticide for the job. Yep. You got the right tool, the sprayer. Yep. And and it all comes down to 
the the calibration of the rate and it's almost like that thermometer on the end of that catheter exactly where everything everything is right but there's one tiny component that can make the whole system fail correct yeah and intermittently like that was you know if your rate is suppose it's intermittent and you're driving along and it's putting on you know 30 grams of, of active ingredient and now it doubles the rate or it halves the rate hmm. and now you're putting on 10 or 15 grams for a little while and then it's back up to 30 well you'll have a spotty messy field but you'll go oh no i mean you can see that in a cedar too you know somebody gets a plug run or a plugged hole section and you know, they just drive along and seeding away. And yeah, the seeding, seed's coming out of the tank and it's going everywhere else, but not in that one section. The so evidence, said, evidence comes up two weeks later when you get these big long stripes. It happens to us all. My sense is that problems and solving problems is fun. You've used the word fun a few times. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Is, that, does, is that just what, is that what makes you excited to be a farmer is because there's lots of these, these, problems to solve and that's what you get a charge out of that probably yeah the actual you know the driving you know, the seating the I mean, i i'm uh i'm very poor at sitting in a seat driving it's uh, one of my one of my least favorite things the actual farming part is i find kind of boring you know because you're just driving and driving and driving but uh it gives me time to think about well, what am i gonna dream up next or what am i gonna do next I mean, that's kind of how the robotic tractor and egg open GPS and all these things came is just there's too much time sitting there thinking, you know, when you're when you're just driving a tractor. The fun parts, fixing and, and building things and, you know, designing new ideas for me. Well, anyway. You're an engineer. I mean, that makes total sense. Tell, tell me about the tractor because it's it's legendary now. I think you've spoken about it at <laughs> farm shows. And <laughs> oh, it's funny. <laughs> A friend of mine is a pro, uh, program manager for the new drill for John Deere, and he was in Australia, and he's been teaching dealerships and and uh, some farmers on on using the new the new drill and and uh, the the guy who made Egg Open GPS or the guy with the robot tractor actually came up a few times in his travels, like even in Australia. It's it's funny how you know, kind of everyone has seen the videos and everyone has heard about the silly thing. We were at a wedding in Australia and the people from across the table were farmers in New Zealand. And they're like, oh, you're the guy that has the, the robot tractor. Tell me about the tractor. Well, it just started out with, uh, with auto steer and um, just kind of wanted section control on the, on the air seeder. And then that bloomed into... Uh, GPS auto steer and you know auto turning on the headlands and then it turned into well I'm not really doing anything in the tractor so maybe it can just do itself and then just adding the software more and more in the the mechanical interface to control the tractor and yeah it, it can drive itself but uh, I don't do that anymore there was just it, we really take for granted as humans a little bit of interaction and corrections we make when we are driving you know it's just that little bit of you know there's a there's a gas well so you're going to drive around it you know or there's a tree fell 
and you just you know, like on the edge of the field and so you're going to drive around it or there's a pothole or there's a new wet spot or you know like anything that can go wrong mechanically i mean this equipment has an operator for a reason and i just found that you know no matter how good you try to make it technically you can always dream up 50 more scenarios of where the thing can fail or where the thing can drive into the trees or off of a cliff and uh I kind of found that discouraging because I think in a very controlled, perfectly square field with, you know, with no patches of trees inside of it, that sort of thing, it's a maybe, you know, and I think you get that in horticultural where we're seeing far more robot development in horticultural vineyards, that sort of thing where um, the fields are smaller and they're, they're very meticulous and controlled. That, that I think is the future of robots. Whereas, you know, pulling a 45 foot roller in the field, I mean, it's a simple process, but if anything goes wrong with that 200 horsepower tractor and that 40,000 pound roller, well, stuff's gonna break and it's gonna be expensive. So it was a fun project. It was fun to do. It was fun to ski behind the tractor in the winter by itself and, and, and figure out the technical aspect. But I think once it was built, this was like, you know, it's like when a dog chases a car and then finally catches the car and then he goes, well, now what? Technology isn't always the answer. Like the newer technology may not be the right, the right fit for your farm. And I think that's where really good understanding of the technology, being able to do an accurate return on investment of that technology and it doesn't matter what the technology is but but don't just listen to the the ads and and the colorful pictures and the the slick marketing of a of a particular piece of equipment with a particular piece of technology is to do a you know a good old-fashioned return on investment you know do will this technology actually make me money i i think variable rate is a good example because it should be quite easy to prove a really good ROI on it. And it's expensive to do. I mean, the technology is expensive. The, the, the equipment, the mapping, the uh, getting together all the data, creating the prescription maps, doing all of these things takes a lot of effort, takes a lot of time, and it takes a lot of money. And in the end, if you didn't do it, how much farther are you ahead after all the, the cost and the work and that sort of thing is removed from that, like your, your true return on investment, you know, is it worth it to do? You know, At the beginning of this conversation, you talked about, you know, a simple metric is what you called it, the pounds of CO2 per, per pound of grain. So in converting all the energy in to the, to the to the energy out, I guess, or the product out. In my mind, variable rate is going down that path to more efficient use of of the resource. And I hear what you're saying about the cost because it because you need to create the map and you need to invest in the work to do that. You need to you need to invest in the equipment that can apply the variable rate. But ultimately, do you see a more precise way of applying inputs as a as a way down that path to more efficient use of resources 
I think real-time analysis, you know, ahead of the tractor, you scoop up a sample of dirt and you process that sample and, uh, you know, have a closed loop system where you're applying the nutrients based on what that particular part of the field needs. You know, that I think would be really slick. Right. So more of some, some sensors that can give you a, a yes. just in time or real, like you said, real time rate based on, on the actual need right there, that, that minute when you're, when you're planting the crop or spraying the crop. Yes. Yeah. You know, because then as you're driving along, it just does it. You know, it's kind of like, like speed compensation on your sprayer or your air seeder. The faster you go, the more product you put down. Well, you know, the less nitrogen that's in the soil. Well, we, we bump that up and, and phosphates and sulfur or, or whatever you're trying to apply um, in combination with maps. Um, you know, can we make the whole process easier rather than this whole long chain of, you know, so many sources of information? And, and that's another problem with, with agriculture in general is it's really hard to know what to do in the first place because the variables are... Are, are so high and so many of them like it's 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 an almost unsolvable formula you know what if you could tell me what it's going to rain this year i could tell you exactly how much to fertilize that just that real-time application of inputs based on what's going on right in front of the seed drill or right in front of the sprayer is that something that gets your engineering mind excited it or does what? yeah um, to be able to use some of the current chip technologies to measure some of those requirements, uh, that would, I think, would would dramatically change the industry. Are are you plugged into people who might be able to solve that for us, or or would you are you in that that group trying to come up with a solution, or is this we're not there yet in terms of technology? I you know. Have you heard about the new NIR uh, soil analysis techniques? Yeah, yeah. They're just, they're just starting to play around with that. And I think some of the, you know, it's like a grain moisture chart. You you come up with correction charts where, you know, the, the NIR says this. So then you need a chart that says, well, based on my type of soil, it, you know, I have this much nitrogen in the soil. And I think as as more and more of these areas get explored and, and more research gets done in the NIR, you know, I think that that's a, that's a possibility. It's, it's here. We just need to tune it a bit. I think a lot of farmers would, would see a lot of sense in that where the variable rate, all the variable rate technology and processes we have now are, are leading us down that path. And and maybe yeah. ad adoption is is fairly low for variable rate right now for all the reasons that you talked about. But yeah, but once we get to that, then it will be like like auto steer or like uh, exactly. suction control. It'll be something that everybody sees a clear need for, and then adoption will be almost instant. You know, and, and I think doing nutrient analysis real time that's a I think is a real game changer. And I really hope that you know, agriculture industry as a whole, you know, seriously looks at that sort of thing. And I'm sure they are. I mean, the first one to, first one to market on something like that. 
I mean, that's a that's a good thing. Take the big picture view of agriculture. How do you think farming in Canada needs to change? I, I think we really in Canada need to be worried, well, not worried, but concerned with our cost of production. And you know, as things are constantly changing, especially in the world, um, how or, or which countries will be the first ones to say, well, we can't buy your food because it's too, too expensive. You know, people are making that decisions today in grocery stores saying, well, I can't afford to eat vegetables or I can't afford to eat certain foods. So then I just won't buy them. You know, I, I can't afford the expensive cuts of beef. You know, I can't I can't spend $40 a night on on uh, on beef for my family. So then they just don't buy it. So I think on the world stage. Um, where, where are we? You know, as a country, I mean, call it all of North America. Um, I mean, adding subsidies in there and that sort of thing with other countries makes it all complicated. But but that's a reality you still have to face. Is uh, is maybe a focus on agriculture should be, you know, can we produce it cheaper? How do we produce it cheaper? Well, and these are hard questions. Really hard questions. You know, is technology more technology the answer to that? We, we it, it, I guess it is if labor is the biggest cost. I don't know whether it is, but I mean, we talked about fertilizer. That's a, obviously a big crop input. We talked about machinery and how to lower machinery costs per per ton. Mm-hmm. Um, well, uh, nitrogen, talk- like, say fertilizer, uh, nit- be able to uh, nitrogen fix is uh, like wheat and corn and canola and some of these high end crops to be able to develop, you know, biologicals that can help fix nitrogen or, you know, whether it's in the plant already, like a like a pulse sort of like suppose we could we could fix half of the requirements on corn, wheat and, and canola. Yeah. You know, to be able to fix half of that end requirement, well, that's a huge saving. You know, cost, just direct cost and yeah. energy and, you know, environmental cost and all that sort of thing. I mean, that's and it's an extreme win for agriculture. Looking at your farm productivity as, as pounds of carbon dioxide equivalent going in and pounds of grain coming out, is that how you look at your farm productivity? I do, yeah. Trying to get the same amount of production but putting less input. How do you begin as a farmer to to think through how to make those improvements? We, um, well, let's take a simple one. Let's go back to the stripper header. A combine that doesn't have a straw chopper saves about what 40 50 horsepower maybe more on these big ones probably 100 horsepower on these really big straw choppers that make a windstorm out the back to make a hurric- make a hurricane blush um it, it takes a lot of power it takes a lot of capital cost you know with knives and that sort of thing but mainly it's just 
straight power for the combine. You know, and we're we're chopping up straw. We like a lot of the new headers. They you know they're almost at the root level, so they're taking in all of the straw in the combine. Sure, they have lots of power. They have lots of lots of everything, but if you just let the straw fall over and the bugs kill it, isn't that a lot more efficient? There's a lot of cases where where we we've tried to conquer nature in agriculture and maybe we need to start thinking more about how nature can help us. I was really encouraged by Ag Canada looking more into the whole aspect of climate change and how we farm in this new climate because the climate has changed for sure like since I was a kid since you were a kid and looking in on some of these ideas on you know accepting the weather change and maybe using it to our advantage we have higher co2 uh, plants need co2 to grow and can we capitalize on that can we take up even more co2 with the same or even less energy like can we make the plant more co2 efficient you know like can we get wheat and canola to be a, a type c4 plant like corn you know where it grows all the time and can we improve those efficiencies just block out all the noise about what climate change and the politics of climate change and just sit down and think well, how can i use this to my advantage with a changing level of co2 so it's something we really need to explore We close with a conversation about the quote Brian used earlier in the podcast. Farming is what I do. It's not who I am. Certainly, I do farming and I do do the mechanics of farming and that sort of thing. But my passion seems to be more around how can we take our almost limitless technology we have today and apply it to farming and actually have it successful. That's where my head's going most of the time. You're, you're, so you're not a farmer. I'm putting that in quotation marks that you can't see. Definitely so not. What, 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 <laughs> my neighbors <laughs> would agree. <laughs> so how do you define yourself, Brian? I think one word, curious. Um, I love to read. I read, 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 read all the time. Uh, thank goodness for auto steer because I'm I'm constantly researching thesis and new ideas of control systems and microcontrollers and new ideas and new software techniques and and that sort of thing and um the the actual act of farming you know i i, I kind of just leave that up to nature and yeah i know i could spend a lot more time worrying about markets and you know trying to get that extra dollar or maybe grow that extra two bushels but but that's not where my heart is. My heart is in, uh, you know, thinking up newer ideas and, and, and trying stuff on the side. I think that we're running into uh, chemical issues. You know, I think with resistance is something that we, we talk about. We talk about it at, you know, conferences and agronomy update and things like that. And every year that list of gets shockingly longer and the percentages of resistant weeds get higher and higher so we need solutions that you know, one of the best sayings and i wish i could remember who said it you mean you can't have a 
a chemical solution for a chemical problem? And what are we doing in terms of, of thinking about other methods of, of weeding? You know, be it lasers, be it um, like a conductive solution that we use high voltage electricity to take care of weeds, you know, other mechanical methods, uh, pick and place type systems with machine learning and machine vision and that sort of thing. You know, like eventually we're gonna run out of uh, chemicals. I mean, kosher is a, is a huge issue. You know, thinking up some of these newer ideas will be for, for everyone to think about these ideas and, and come up with solutions is gonna become really, really important. Well, it is really important. Um, these problems are on our doorsteps and, you know, I hate to say it, we're kind of ignoring it. I have to ask you, which I didn't ask earlier and I should have, how did you end up farming when you were doing the, the medical engineering? I thought it would be, well, I knew because I did grow up on the farm. I knew it would give me lots of free time to do the things that I enjoy. <laughs> it sounds terrible, doesn't it? No. What, what are the things you enjoy most? What gets you excited? Um, love the uh, going cycling, going running, going hiking, going deep into the mountains, that sort of thing. But I also love building hot rods and building technology and enabling others to build the technology for themselves in an extremely cost-effective manner. And, and just the agriculture's been well. It, it's, it's done well for, for me and my family. And a project like Ag Open GPS allows me to give back to the community. And in turn, people that have received that, they've also given back to the agricultural community. And it's, it's spread all over the world in every country that I can possibly imagine. And the kindness of farmers and the unique skill set of farmers all over the world, I have found is absolutely mind boggling. And when I, when I look at the, the capability of farmers, I, you, you honestly feel that there isn't a problem that we can't solve if we actually just identify the problem and move forward with a solution. Well, you might be a reluctant farmer, Brian, but the far agriculture in, in Canada and the world is a lot richer having brains like you helping us along. Thank you for this conversation. Thanks, Jay. It's, it's fun. Brian Tischler farms near Manville, Alberta, a town 150 kilometers or so east of Edmonton on the Yellowhead Highway. Brian started Ag Open GPS, that's AG Open GPS, as an experiment to test some ideas he had for do-it-yourself tractor auto steer. Find out more on the Ag Open GPS YouTube channel and the website discourse.agopengps.com. Canola Watch is an agronomy service from the Canola Council of Canada with support from the three prairies-based canola grower organizations, Sas Canola, Alberta Canola, and Manitoba Canola Growers. 
At the core of Canola Watch is a timely agronomy email with regular updates throughout the growing season on pests, weather, fertilizer management, and other topics. If you are not already subscribed, please sign up at canolawatch.org. This has been a Canola Watch podcast. I'm Jay Wetter. Thank you very much for listening.